Good morning, church, wherever you might be, uh, whether you're here in person or joining us online. I'm assuming as I look out over this crowd that there are many joining us online, uh, with this being spring break uh, week for this area. And uh, I, I want to give you just a little warning that this morning I am sharing with you something that God has been placing on my heart since we began transitioning to come down here uh, from Muncie and join the staff here. And I figure if the Holy Spirit beats up on me, I can return the favor and allow him to beat up on you just a little bit. So this morning is not an easy, not easy for me, um, but I want it to be encouraging to you. I want you to walk out of here going, yes, we can do that. Yes, that is a possibility. The elders have been asking uh, or making a list uh, over the last little while here of things that we are calling big rocks. These, they're, they're the big items that are coming. We know they're coming and we kind of need to kind of prepare for them. We need to, to give a little thought to them before they get here um, because there's decisions on the horizon that are going to just need some attention. And we don't want to make snap decisions. We want to think through it. And so these big rocks are before us. We see it coming and we begin preparing for it now. A couple of my big rocks uh, as, as I am, am here and, and looking over uh, my responsibilities is uh, kind of diving into the prayer ministry, uh, maybe bringing new life or, or restructuring or whatever, putting together prayer ministry, small group ministry. Uh, as well. And as I'm meeting with the staff, one of the things that I've discovered is job descriptions. That has become a big rock for me. Now, some of you go, well, that's kind of crazy. But with the staff changes that have happened over the last year, year and a half, some of the job descriptions have changed. People have moved positions. They've taken on more responsibility. And, and the job descriptions don't really line up to what they're doing. And so it's hard to evaluate. It's hard to know if you're doing a good job if you don't know what it is you're supposed to be doing, right? So we are in the process of bringing all those job descriptions up to, up to date because that's important because we need to know what is expected of us. When I come to the office on Tuesday morning, what is expected of me? When you go to work tomorrow morning, what is expected of you? You need to know what is expected. Job descriptions define who is responsible for what. And so whatever your occupation, whatever your career, you have expectations. You have responsibilities placed upon you. Even if you're a stay-at-home parent, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad. Really, right? you got to keep the toddler alive. That, some days, that's your number. Just keep the toddler alive. Don't strangle the teenager. That, that's top of our list. Don't strangle the teenager. Now, let me just do a little side to the teens. Okay, listen up. This is important. You need to know this. You may have issues with your parents. You may at times think that they have totally lost their minds. You may think that they just don't understand. But remember this, they are doing the very best they can with what you are giving them to work with. Right? Help them out. Help them out. 
So keeping with the theme of God and Mondays for one more week, I want to talk about a part of every person's job description. This is every believer has this line somewhere in their job description. I don't care what you do or where you work. It's the idea that transformed by Christ means that we live on mission, right? We t- I talked about that uh, a few weeks ago when I talked about the lessons that I've learned in 33, now 34 years of ministry. That we live on mission, and that mission is basically the call to make disciples. That's our job description. Make disciples. As you are going, that means in your workplace, as you are going to work, make disciples. As you are going to the store, make disciples. As you are walking through your neighborhood, make disciples. As you are going to school, make disciples. And the starting point for making disciples is evangelism. That's your job description. It's on every one of our job descriptions. As a believer, we often think, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism. That's fine. It's just going to be a little tougher for you. But it's on your job description. We're not, none of us are, are off the hook for sharing this incredible song, this incredible story that we just sang about in Homecoming. We love to sing about it. We love to hear about it. We love to read about it. We love to think about it. We're just not all that big on sharing it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 says, So from now on, okay, now that we are believed, now from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job description. He gave us this job, this, this responsibility, this expectation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What a great story. What a great message we have. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One of my favorite verses is John 5, 17. It says, to this day, Jesus is speaking, he says, to this day my father is always at his work, and I too am working. God is always at his work. And Jesus, too, is working. And and this is God's work, the redemption of lost people, reconciling people to himself, drawing people to himself. That's what he is about. That's what Jesus came for. And he is inviting us into his work. As you go, make disciples. The starting point for this great work comes from a principle that I discovered in the book of Nehemiah few years ago. Eric preached from Nehemiah four, uh, four weeks ago, so I'm not going to repeat the historical context other than to say that Nehemiah is, is coming onto the scene near the end of an 80 or 90 year process of the nation of Israel returning from slavery in Babylon back to Jerusalem. And so this is after some 50 or 60,000 people have gone before him and have already returned to rebuild the city. So Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to read just the first four verses. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, in the the month of Kislev. Now, 
I'm pronouncing all those right, all right? <laughs> if you have some other pronounce, pronunciation of those, um, I, I'm right. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now understand that this, Nehemiah is writing this or is, is experiencing this almost 150 years after Nebuchadnezzar burned Jerusalem. So after the city was destroyed, after the gates were burned, 150 years later, people have started to return 70 or 80 years prior to this. Nehemiah had never actually seen Jerusalem. He had never been there. In fact, his father had never seen Jerusalem. His grandfather had probably never seen Jerusalem, or at best, maybe as a little kid. <clears throat> Can you imagine what it would be like to spend your whole life, to spend your parents' whole lives, your grandparents' whole life, retelling stories about this great city of God, this thing you have never actually seen But there was something in Nehemiah that longed for Jerusalem. Longed for that once great city of God. The stories of, of, of what it was like of God's presence in the temple. We here at Eagle are getting ready to celebrate the 30th anniversary. 30 years of ministering in the northwest side of Indianapolis. 30 years of gospel presence. And this is a great area. These are great communities. If you've been in the prayer room, you will see this on, on one of the walls. If you haven't been in the prayer room, shame on you. Find it through those double doors back up the staircase. Can't miss it. But painted on one of the walls is this picture of this area, this community. A map of the communities that we take responsibility for to bringing the gospel to the people in Lebanon, Zionsville, Brownsburg, Pike, Avon, Westfield. You might add Fishers and Noblesville, Western Boone. You might go beyond that. <clears throat> Nehemiah, he dreamed of a renewed Jerusalem. He probably wasn't even born when Zerubbabel took that first group back to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding the city of God. And to hear that 80 years later, that the people are in great trouble and disgraced. The walls of the city are still broken. The gates are still burned. Now for us here at Eagle, we're not, we're not looking at broken down bricks and mortar. When we look at the surrounding communities, we have to see the broken lives. We have to see the, the troubled lives that, that are represented, the lostness of people around us, the brokenness of lives. Those that have been burned by lost hope, those that have been burned, shattered by, by broken dreams, shattered dreams, the, the trouble of souls separated from God. Do you see that? 
when you walk your neighborhood? Do you see that on your drive to work? Do you see that when you step into your office? Do you see that when you go to school? Your first period is filled with broken people. But if we're going to continue to impact our communities, if we're going to see them moving from ruined lives to renewed lives, evangelism starts with this fact. If your heart isn't broken for the lostness of the city, you will never be fully engaged in reaching the city for Christ. I'll let you chew on that for just a little. If your heart isn't broken for the lostness of the city, you will never be fully engaged in reaching the city for Christ. We have 30 years at Eagle with a fair share of highs and lows, victories and defeats, mountaintops and valleys. Every local body of believers goes through those ups and downs. Everyone has that in their history, their, their story. But if the next 30 years are going to start on a high, if we're going to reach this community, if we're going to accomplish the call God has placed on us to join Him in the reconciliation of people, then we need to first of all become broken for it. When Nehemiah heard the report from his brother, he sat down and wept. He mourned for days. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the month of Kislev. Chapter 2, verse 1, when, when Nehemiah started to do something about it, it says it was in the, the month of Nisan. Now, if you go back and look, read a commentary, that, that, there's four months between those two. For four months, Nehemiah was broken for the state that Jerusalem was in after 70 years and 60,000 people going back for the purpose of rebuilding it. He was shocked at the report. He no doubt just assumed that after 80 years of people returning, the city would be great again. He would hear marvelous things that the temple was in full full uh, working order, that there were celebrations and festivities and, and everything was great and God was being... No, he heard trouble, disgrace. If your heart isn't broken for the lostness of the city, you will never be fully engaged in reaching the city for Christ. It was not a warm reception from the neighboring cities or areas when, when that, that first one's Zerubbabel and the first wave got back to Jerusalem. All the nations around them didn't want to see Jerusalem built. Didn't want to see another, uh, another uh, nation coming in. The first attempts at rebuilding the temple were met with fierce opposition. The first attempts at building the wall were met with fierce opposition. Our combined efforts at transforming our community may be met with fierce opposition. That's okay. But no wall, Nehemiah felt they needed to go back and build the wall. No wall meant that the people were defenseless. Now hear me on this. No evangelism means the people will be lost. The people are defenseless. 
Our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is not my neighbor, not my coworker, not that student that sits across from me, not the teacher that gives the hard assignments. That's not the enemy. But the enemy is playing in their lives. The enemy is, is running, uh, having a heyday in, in their souls and messing them up, and they are troubled and disgraced. They are defenseless against the enemy. We tend to focus on the world's attacks on the church, the persecution. But let me tell you this, attacking Christianity doesn't change Christianity. Attacking Jesus doesn't change Jesus. Doesn't even hurt him. Doesn't even even add a dent or a blemish to who he is. It only shows how little people know. That our lives as ambassadors, we are sent into the world with a message that they have never heard, cannot conceive of, but will return their rubbled lives, their disgraced lives, their troubled lives, and renew and become a new creation, a new life with hope, the hope that you have because you've known Jesus. We need to become more concerned about how Satan is attacking my coworker than how he's attacking the church. The church will survive. Folks, don't worry about it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the gates of hell will prevail mightily against your neighbor, against your coworker, against your locker partner. We need to become more concerned about that that people all around us are in trouble and they don't know it. Without Jesus, they are defenseless against the enemy and his schemes. And he's subtle. He's crafty. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 says, Then Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus is about to send the 12 out. And he says, you guys need to be praying. You look at that harvest and it is far more than what the 12 of you can do. You need to pray for helpers. You need to pray that God sends out more workers, that there's a whole body, a whole army of church, of believers that are going to go out and they're going to gospel, they're going to share the gospel, they're going to evangelize, they're going to spread the word about who I am. Jesus had compassion. And it was his compassion that drove him. Do you know how many churches there are in Zionsville? One. One. There's only ever been one church. There are a lot of buildings, a lot of congregations, but we are one army of people. One church with Christ the head who has this incredible message, this this preaching the good news of the kingdom, this healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. That word compassion actually means had a stomach ache for them. 
He felt for them at his deepest. That's compassion. You have neighbors who are lost, you, who are living in spiritual darkness. No matter how great their life may look, no matter how successful they are in business, how great their kids are, how put together their family is, they are lost. Jesus sees your neighborhood and feels compassion. His stomach aches for your neighbor. Students, Jesus goes to school with you every day and has compassion for those students and teachers that are going through life with no real hope. After seven weeks of God and Mondays, Jesus goes into our workplaces and has compassion for the people. He aches for the trouble and distress of the souls of your coworkers, your bosses, your clients. We have a God who loves people, whose heart is broken for the lostness of this community. But if your heart isn't broken for the lostness of the city, you will never be fully engaged in reaching the city for Christ. So we have to start where Nehemiah started. Nehemiah fasted and prayed for days. See, the idea of evangelism can be scary. I've got to talk to people about Jesus. But it's not. I just live it out and I pray. Prayer is when that starts. Prayer is where evangelism starts on your knees, in your quiet place. Fasting had become a regular and frequent practice during the captivity. Nehemiah, that was a common thing for him. It was a way to commemorate all the ceremonies with, without a temple. He fasted in remembrance of the fall of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, and the promised return. We need to fast and pray for the burning of people, for the lostness of people, the broken lives. how do we pray? Let me get real practical with you. In your sermon notes, I've listed them all, so you can just listen. You don't have to read them. They'll pop up on the screen. But you need to first pray for yourself. You need to pray that God breaks your heart for lost people. This is what God's been doing to me over the last few weeks or months. He says, Harris, I'm not just putting you down there to do your thing. I'm not just putting you down there to be a part of a staff that's great, a part of a church that's great, a part of a church that's had a great history. I'm not, I'm not just putting you down there to do that. There are people, I'm putting you in a neighborhood. We've been praying for the right house. We know it's coming. Part of that prayer is not only the right house, the right neighborhood, the neighborhood God wants. On the street, I hope there are no believers on my cul-de-sac. Now, a lot of people pray, oh, I just pray that there's neighbors, my neighbors are Christians. I don't. It, it would be easier, but that's not what God has called us to. Pray for yourself that God breaks your heart for the lost. 
Pray that God give you a boldness and a power. Second Timothy, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of instruction. Power, a boldness to go in, a love for them, a compassion for who they are, for their brokenness. And instructions, we have the words of hope. And then for God to give you an opportunity. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. Why do you have hope? Why do you sing songs of homecoming? Why do you sing songs of forgiveness? Why do you love Jesus so much? You see, now evangelism gets real easy because I don't have to memorize 14 different verses. I don't have to understand the theology of the atonement. I don't have to understand all of the, all of the, I just need to know this is why I believe in Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is who he is. There's a song by, I think, Ann Wilson called uh, My Jesus. And it talks about all the, you know, all the hurt, all the, all the, all the that was in me. And then it, it just goes, let me tell you about my Jesus. That's evangelism. Let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you what he means to me. Let me give you the reason for the hope that I have. Peter says, always be ready to do that. So pray those three things for yourself. Now, here's how you pray for your lo- the lost. Now, I didn't write the verses out because you've got homework, right? You need to take that note sheet and you need to go home. And this week, I need you to pick two or three people, allow God first, ask God who, who are those two or three that you need to be praying for. They're, they're lost, they're troubled, they're, they're, their lives are, are broken, their souls are, are a mess, whether they know it or not. And I want you to list those three and then you're going to pray these things for those three people this week. Maybe every day. Maybe a different person every day. Maybe, I don't care how you do it, do it. But you're going to have to look those verses up. Grab a Bible, look them up, and then pray these verses over people. Pray that God draws them to himself. John 12 says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see, you're just praying scripture. God's going to answer these prayers. I will guarantee you God's going to answer. He, because we're praying scripture. We're praying what he wants. Pray that God draws them to himself. Pray that they seek to know God. Romans 3 said there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. We need to pray that they begin seeking. They're not going to know why. They have no idea why suddenly the spiritual realm, why suddenly God has, has entered into their mind. Why they're suddenly wanting to know these things. You're praying that that happens. Pray that they hear only truth. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the only thing that can set us free. The truth, the understanding of who Jesus is. We need to pray that with all the voices out there, with all the lies of the enemy, with all the distortions, with all the junk that is put across as real, that they would hear only truth. That only the truth would stick. Pray that Satan is bound 
from blinding them to the truth. 2 Corinthians says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We need to pray those blinders away. We need to pray that he doesn't have the ability to blind them to the truth. That those blinders fall off and that they can see truth for the first time. Pray that the Holy Spirit works in them to convict of sin. If you ask anyone, are you a sinner? They might say yes, but they don't really believe it. They believe they're okay. They're all right. You think you're going to heaven? Yeah, I hope so. I'm better than the guy across the street. You know what he's doing? We need to pray that the Holy Spirit convicts them of sin. John 16, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That they'll see sin for what it is. That they'll begin to understand the brokenness, the powerlessness we have against it. And then pray Romans 10, that God sends someone to lead them to Christ. And oh, may that be you. Pray that you have opportunity. Pray that someone, Romans 10 says, and how, will, how then will they call on him who they, who they have not believed? How will they believe in him who they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Pray that someone is sent. Pray that you are sent. That word preach doesn't mean stand up here and do what I'm doing. It means proclaim the good news. It means tell them the reason for the hope that you have. Every one of us can do that. Again in Romans 10, pray that they confess and believe in Christ as Savior. Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Pray that they come to that point. That as the Spirit convicts them of sin, they will confess that sin. They will believe that Jesus is the Savior. As the reason for your hope, He can become the reason for their hope. Pray that they repent. Acts 3, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Acts 3, 19, again, that they yield all to follow Christ. They understand that surrender. And then pray that their faith in Christ would grow. Now, now this, this, is, this is a laundry list. This is a pretty good list. And do you see that we are praying for lost people who have no understanding of Jesus or a bad understanding of Jesus or a false understanding of Jesus that have believed the lies that have no hope, their lives are broken and we are already praying that their faith in Christ would grow and they have no faith? That's a prayer of faith. I believe Jesus is going to reach this person and so I am praying right now that that person who doesn't know him would grow in his faith in them. There's power in this. There's redemption in this. There is victory in this. I want to invite the worship team to come up, back up as I tell you one more story. But I want you to seriously take that list. Don't just stick it in your Bible with all the other ones from the weeks before. You know that when you open it up and they fall out and then you throw them away. I need you to keep this one. I need you to use this one. When, we, when I was in Orlando a few weeks ago, I was attending an exponential conference for church planters. 
And there were 5,000 people there. About 150 from our denomination gathered for this church planting conference. And John Stumbo, the president of, the, of, our, of our denomination, challenged the large gathering of Alliance pastors with these words. He said in John chapter 4, Jesus had just led a Samaritan woman to faith in himself. Remember the woman at the well. He'd come and, and they had that conversation and she left rejoicing. She left, went and told the townspeople that you got to come meet the guy that's told me everything about my life and loves me. And he's sharing this story with the disciples who weren't there at the time. They came back. And he says, don't you have a saying to the 12 disciples? It's still four months until harvest. You can tell. You can look, look at the signs, look at what's happening around. You can tell we're still four months away from the harvest. You know where the plants are, how the growth is, what the weather's like. And you know we're four months away from bringing in the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. And look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Something is happening in the American church. We have pulled back from the harvest. We've run back into the farmhouse. And maybe you think, someday I'll share with my coworker. Someday I'll share with my neighbor. Someday I'll share with my classmate. Now just, it isn't the right time. The disciples were saying, now is not the time. This is not the place. These are not the people. But Jesus says, now is the time. This is the place. These are the people. Don't believe the lie that people don't want to hear the gospel. It's the only good news they'll hear. Open your eyes. Father, this morning, I pray that you would open our heart, that you would convict our heart, that you would embolden our faith. Father, that we would truly be your ambassadors, that we would truly be those that walk into these communities with a message of hope that, that, that these broken lives that you are leading us into, that you are building relationships with, the lives where you are working in. Father, open our eyes. The field is white unto harvest. Father, to your glory, to the upbuilding of your kingdom, to the spread of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.